I invite you to take a Bible and to open it to the second chapter of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. And if you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you there in the pew, you'll find Hebrews chapter 2 on page 1001. Hebrews chapter 2, page 1001. Last week, as we went through the first chapter of this letter, we saw that the the main question that it sought to answer was, who is Jesus? And that that is the most important question that the Bible addresses for us. It has things to say about you and me, about how to live and how to get along with other people. But what the Bible is primarily designed to tell us is not something about us, but something about God, about who he is and what he is like. And the way Hebrews opens is it says that long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke, but now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, Jesus. And that we can bring all of our questions about God, what he's like and and what he would want us to do to Jesus and look at his life and his teaching and find our questions there answered. Well, chapter 2 has a different question for us, and you'll see it right away in the first couple of verses. If this is who Jesus is, then how shall we escape? If Jesus is all that the writer has told us in chapter 1, what chapter 2 gets right to is the question, how shall we escape? And so we're going to read it in its entirety. It's 18 verses long, and so if you'll follow along as I start with verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death For everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of Your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, 
He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So conclude our reading this morning. But did you see it? The question right there, in the beginning, in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And the resounding answer of this chapter is, we won't. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The answer is, we won't. Now, it's pretty simple if we just switch one of the words. How shall we escape if we neglect the way of escape? Oh, you don't. Yeah, you don't. If a way of escape has been provided and we don't get on that way of escape, we don't follow the path and the emergency lights that get us out of where we're going, if we don't take advantage of the way of escape, then the answer is we won't escape. Well, then for us, it's helpful. Well, what are we trying to escape from? Is it something small? Is it something big? I mean, what is going on that we're supposed to consider? But the answer is clear. Something is coming from which we will need and want a way of escape. And a way has actually been provided. And so what is it that we need escape from? Well, these verses describe, this chapter describes us in a a variety of ways that gets to a sense of what's wrong and and what's coming. And so first we're going to look at what this chapter says about you and me, and then what it says about Jesus and what he's done, and then consider the choices that are before us in light of that. But right away in verse 1, it says something about each and every one of us. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. In other words, you and I are prone to drift. We are prone to get in trouble. We don't have to do a lot to get into trouble. We don't have to do a lot to find ourselves faced with difficulty. If you think about this just in the physical realm, if, if your goal is to be out of shape, what do you have to do? Nothing, right? If you want to get into shape, you have to do something. But just on your own, with no activity, you will get out of shape. Your muscles, by a lack of use, will be able to do less and less. You don't have to come up with a great plan. You don't have to come up with a great strategy. That's what you're prone to. Our our world is prone to get to decay and to get worse. So that, for example, if, if there's like a room in your basement that you haven't gone to for a really long time, 
do you think it looks better or worse than it did six months ago? You haven't done anything to it. You haven't even opened the door. But what do you expect to find? Wow, where'd all this dust come from? Where'd all this dirt come from? I didn't, I didn't throw dirt in there. I didn't, I didn't ask the dust. To, I, just, I just didn't do anything. I just didn't go in and clean it like, as regularly as I should. But we experience that there's something about us that left alone, we don't just automatically become better or stronger or faster over time. It takes work. It takes effort. And so when we simply stop putting forward the effort, when we stop paying close attention to what we've heard, what will happen is that we'll drift. And that's what the writer is telling us right away in verse 1. Hey, pay close attention. Focus. Don't stop focusing. If you stop focusing, your mind is going to wander. You're going to start drifting. You're you're not going to care anymore about what chapter 1 says as it relates to who is Jesus But there is something about you and me that is broken, that we are on our own, prone to drift and prone to wonder. Later, it's over in verse 15, but we find out that we're subject to fear. It says that Jesus has done something to deliver all of us who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. All of us are afraid of something, so we're prone to drift. We're also subject to fear just asked you to think in your mind and write up a list. What are you afraid of? We might be afraid of different things, but it wouldn't take us long to come up with some things that we're afraid of. Things that we've maybe seen happen to other people. And sometimes this fear actually comes when things are going well. And what we start to get afraid of is, oh no, things are going so well, something bad's probably going to happen. Shoot, you can't have this many good days in a row. You can't have this many this much going your way. And so even when good things are happening somewhere in the back of our mind, we can start to be worried about something going wrong. I mean, and this isn't if you believe in God or not. This is just part of our human experience. This is common to us all, no matter what we believe. I mean, an example would be this afternoon. If it's like two minutes left in the Browns Giants game and the Browns are actually winning And you're like, okay, there's only two minutes left. We're finally going to win. Somebody, if you're not in a room by yourself, will say, don't say that. Don't don't jinx it. It it could happen, but don't ruin it by actually saying it could happen. Just wait till it happens. Some of you think I just jinxed it because I brought it up. (laughs) But we have this sense that... There is a future that has all these kinds of possibilities. And sometimes we're afraid because we don't know what's going to happen. We're afraid of what could happen. We're afraid that we might mess it up even when things are good. And and this chapter highlights that. We're all prone to fear. But one of the things that we all fear is this reality that all of us as human beings, prone to wonder, subject to fear, that we are destined to die. I don't know how old you were when that sunk in. And just try to think about how old you were when you realized, I am going to die. And whatever else anybody could say to you, you knew that that was true. About three weeks ago now, I was at a funeral of a family member of my brother-in-law's. 51-year-old man died unexpectedly. Um, I think two or three kids 
And I knew that my now sister and brother-in-law were going to drive up from Cincinnati to be there. And so my mom and I went, and the line was out the door to, to, just at the calling hours to, to see this family. And so we're standing in line. I let my sister know that we were there, and so she comes out. And so my, my little niece comes out, and she's crying because she can just feel all of the emotion. She's seven years old. And she looks up at me, and she's got real thick glasses. And her first question is, how old were you when you went to your first funeral? And she's crying. I said, how old are you? Seven. I said, well, um, your Uncle PJ and your mom, and we went to a lot of funerals. Dedo was a, a minister in the church, and so we went to funerals. Even if somebody wasn't related to us, we... We'd go if, if we knew them through the, through the church and stuff. But I was, it was probably about your age when I realized what it meant <laughs> and, and, and what the implications were. There's no way to hide the reality from her. This is not just something that's happened to someone else. This is something that will happen to all of us. And when that sinks in, that all of us have a common fate, a common destiny, that what this verse says is that it, it gets us to be lifelong slaves to fear once that reality sets in and we don't know of any way of hope, any alternative, or any escape. So one song that I loved singing growing up, just a short line that was so easy to remember, but that we are not ready to live until we're ready to die. Because the reality of death can so paralyze us that this thing that we're all going to face, no matter what we do, no matter how well we live, no matter how hard we try, so yeah, we might die differently and we might die at different ages, but there is a destiny that is going to be common to us all. And so this is what's true of each and every one of us. No matter what we believe, no matter where we've come from this morning, we share this fate together as human beings. So then, that's not the emphasis, though, of this chapter. That's what this chapter assumes is just true. And what it tells us is good news for each and every one of us who are willing to admit those things to be true. So we're prone to drift. But did you notice what it says Jesus is willing to do in verse 10? It says, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So we're prone to drift, but Jesus is willing to bring. When we're wandering away, he is willing to search us out and to find us and to bring us back in spite of our wandering in spite of our failures he is gracious that even though we would walk away from him to go walk toward us and to bring us to be back together with him we're subject to fear but verses 9 and 17 tell us that jesus is able to represent us that everything that we're afraid of jesus has experienced look at verse 9 but we see him jesus who for A little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he may taste death for everyone. 
And then verse 17 says the same thing. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. Jesus had to be made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So one of the very unique claims about Christianity is that God himself was willing to enter into our world, experience the limitations that we experience, and even experience death itself. So that when we do bring our fears and all of our concerns up to him in prayer, we are talking to somebody who knows what it's like to be human. Who knows what it's like to have people around him who suffer, who get diseases, who die, who betray him, who used to be friends but aren't friends anymore. That he came and experienced all that we experience as human beings. And therefore, he can represent us. He knows what it's like to be tempted and he knows what it's like to suffer. But what is different about Jesus than us is that these verses make clear that he is destined to reign. He is destined to rule and to reign. Look back, and we're going to go from verses 5 through 9. The writer quotes the Old Testament Psalm 8 and describes how now Jesus in in the second half of verse 7 has been crowned with glory and honor and everything has been put into subjection under his feet. Now he explains it. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. For a little while, who was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. So it's saying that the future for Jesus is that everything, because he was willing to die, has put, been put under subjection to him. So that nothing is left outside of his control. Now when we look around, we say, it doesn't seem like everything's inside of his control. Because there's still a lot that's going on that's bad. And he's saying, yes, this, there's a, a, a dimension to this that is already present. And then there's a dimension to this that is in the future. That's a promise that we're all looking forward to. He did what he had to do to secure this. So it's his. Nobody can take it away from him. Nothing can change the future that Jesus will rule and reign over everything. But that ruling and reigning is still something that we're looking forward to. He hasn't taken over every single human heart and every single choice. And so a lot of stuff continues to happen. That he allows to happen, but he promises to you and to me that it has an ultimate end. And that he is destined to reign. A game that I very much enjoy playing is chess. Not very good at it. But when I play somebody who's better than me, and there's plenty of people that are better than me, there's enough pieces involved that they can know at some point that they've already beaten me. And it's just a matter of time before they put it all together and we actually have a checkmate. But they they just know the strategy. They know how the pieces move. And so the moment they take my queen or the moment they take some significant piece of mine and they see what they have left, they know enough to know what the end will be. It hasn't happened yet. There's still actions that are going to take place, but they know what the ultimate end and outcome will be. 
And this is what it's saying. Jesus has made a decisive move in history by coming into this world and dying on the cross. The the game is set. It, It will not change. He will win and he will be victorious. How long it takes to get to checkmate? None of us know. But we can know that that outcome is secure, that he is destined to reign. And so he did all of this so that when you and I look at our predicament and our need for a savior and we say, how shall we escape? Well, we can escape if we look to him, if we trust in him, the one who's willing to bring us, the one who can represent us, and the one who is destined to reign. If we put our lives into his life, if we put our hope and our trust into his future, then we can escape what we fear. And then the question is, well, what is the cost? So there's, there's, there's us and there's what we struggle with. And then there was for Jesus the choices that he had to make. But what is the cost for you and for me to pursue this? To follow him. Well, the author is saying, look, the only thing you're giving up is something you can't keep anyway. So yes, you're giving your life to him, but don't you know where your life's going anyway? Don't you know how it's prone to drift? Don't you know that it's destined to die? So for you and I to choose Christ, to embrace him, to say, I'm going to follow him and I'm going to give up my life for him is actually to give up a very small thing. To trade in something that's wearing out, that doesn't have a warranty on it, for something that will never wear out, that is absolutely and eternally secure. You look at it and you say, that's not a hard choice. But so many of us don't make it. What we're being offered is, we've got all of this stuff that's prone to break and prone to deteriorate and we're being offered something good and we still resist and we still struggle to choose to follow God. But when we look at that question, what is the cost from the perspective of Jesus for Jesus to obey meant he had to go from his safety and his security and be willing to die and being willing to suffer Does that make sense? For Adam in the garden, he chose to eat. And because he chose to eat, he suffered. For Jesus, it was, am I or am I not willing to suffer? And if I suffer, these people get to eat forever. See, the choice isn't even worth comparing. Adam had everything. Was told to avoid one thing. The consequence of his choice was all this negative stuff that we experience. But for Jesus, he had to choose the suffering. He had to choose the pain. He had to choose the price so that you and I could be set free. And yet what we find out is that for Jesus, it wasn't a hard choice. Turn just a little bit later in Hebrews to Hebrews chapter 12. It gives us this insight of how Jesus was willing to choose to embrace the cost of obedience that for him meant death. 
in verses 1 and 2. The writer says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let's just let go of all the stuff that's weighing us down. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Why? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It says Jesus was willing to endure the suffering and endure the death for the joy, the excitement, the pleasure that he saw would happen when you and I would follow him when we would become his children, and when you and I get to spend forever with him, the joy that that is going to be is so great. That's what the author is saying, that because of that joy, he was willing to experience in the moment, in time and space, suffering and death for you and me. Because it was his desire to not be in heaven alone without us, but to share with us all of his goodness, to share with us his salvation. And so when we hear that, and then we come back to the opening question of chapter 2, well, so how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The answer again is we will not escape. We will not escape if we trust in ourselves instead of in Christ. We will not escape if we choose our own way instead of the way that he has laid out for us. And so we all have a choice to make. To say yes to him, to his way of escape, or not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for making very clear to us what is before each and every one of us. We thank you for treating us like adults, for making clear to us our future. And we thank you that you don't just teach it to us, but that you were willing to come and to experience our struggles, our failures, our fears. And that you were willing to bring us back to yourself. Father, as this next song comes forward, I just pray that you would look into the hearts of each and every one of us and see that as we sing these words, that if for somebody today, this isn't just a song, but it is the prayer of their own heart to express their love to you that this would be the day that they trade in all of their sorrow, all of their shame, all of their guilt, and receive your love, your goodness, and your way of escape. In your son's name we pray. Amen.